Homeland Security researchers see facial recognition systems making progress on accuracy and privacy. The DHS Science and Technology Directorate unveiled findings from its 2022 Biometrics Technology Rally this month. The results hold implications for agencies like Transportation Security Administration and others that are looking into expanding use of biometrics. For the latest, here's Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And tell us more about the testing and the results from the rally. Yeah, so this was 11 days of testing up at the Maryland Test Facility in Upper Marlboro. It evaluated 40 facial recognition configurations in an airport-like environment where you'd have folks going through checkpoints and having to, of course, identify themselves before they were screened. And one of the interesting things this looked at was group facial recognition. So not just one person going through, but groups of two or four. Uh, And so you had 40 different configurations. That includes four face acquisition systems, as they called it, essentially camera systems that would acquire the images of the faces, and then 10 face matching algorithms. And part of the condition of uh, companies participating in these rallies is that DHS will not identify them. Um, just so that they can sort of keep that on on close hold if they don't want to be identified. But you had 14 companies here uh, participating. And you had a threshold of identifying at least 95% of users in groups of two or four. The best combination could identify 97% of people in groups of two or four in less than two seconds per individual. So pretty promising results. Arun Vermori is lead of the DHS S&T Biometric and Identity Technology Center. For many years, we've been seeing this as a one-person-at-a-time problem. We were able to kind of basically show that that assumption that we had to process people one at a time may not really hold, that we can at least go up to groups of two and four without losing any efficiency and without really seeing a major drop in, in matching performance. Yeah, that makes sense. People do often travel in pairs. Exactly. And uh, what about the privacy factor in the tests? That's you know comes up second once they know they can recognize something. Exactly. Yeah, this was actually the first time that in these rallies, which they've been hosting for five years now, that they had a privacy factor as as a factor in these tests. And what they're essentially telling the vendors was make sure your camera systems don't capture people who aren't in the designated areas for facial recognition. And they set up this facility, which looks like a medium-sized warehouse, outfitted it like an airport screening. And they had a center section where you'd have folks in biometrics processing. And then right next to them, lanes where people would be going through regular processing. And essentially, these cameras were, these vendors were told, don't capture the faces of people who are right next door in those lanes for regular processing. And for the most part, the tested systems met those privacy requirements by only capturing individuals standing in those designated areas. Here's Vermuri again. Some of the things that we think we've been able to address here is you can actually configure these things to be very selective and not take photos of everything you see. So you're not getting the guy in the background. You're not getting Bob Marley on your T-shirt. You're not getting the talking head on the TV screen behind the person. So I think from the privacy side, we've seen that if you specify it, industry can come up with solutions to help address or minimize that problem. And what about systems and their responses to different racial demographics or just different types of people? Yeah, equitability was another big factor in these tests, essentially do these work uniformly across different races and genders. Uh, There have, of course, been tests that have found disparities in performance across commercial facial recognition systems and some algorithms, although they are getting more accurate, some are. These tests involved 575 test volunteers representing 54 countries, so they really tried to choose a diverse round of people that would participate in the tests, and they actually measured 
skin tone using a dermatological instrument that's typically used to kind of measure what kind of shades of makeup someone should use. Um, and, and they found that cameras and image quality were really, really the main sources of error in face matching rather than the algorithms themselves. 36 out of the 40 system configurations performed well when there weren't any issues with the images that were taken. Some camera systems struggled with lighter skin tones and some struggled with very dark skin tones as well. Evgeny Sorotin was the principal investigator for the 2022 rally. Here's what he said about that. Skin tone determines the net reflectiveness of your skin, determines how many photons get reflected back into the camera, and fundamentally this is a physics problem. So these cameras can sometimes not be configured properly to take good images regardless of skin tone, and in some cases it results in overexposure. In some cases that results in underexposure. And this result shows that you know these cameras do need to be configured to make sure that they take quality pictures of everyone. Yeah, he's expressing a problem that Ansel Adams pointed out 60 years ago, and that is people of all colors have the same skin reflectance, but the color of the skin underneath varies. And so how do you get a full-bodied look to a photograph, taking into account for the fact that the sensitivity meters and so forth might see things differently? They've struggled through that in the silver photography days, and I guess still in the electronic days. But regardless, these results matter to the TSAs and CBPs and everybody else trying to use this technology. Exactly. This type of uh, group processing facial recognition has obvious applications to ports of entry. Uh, The researchers that we've heard from said the same. TSA is already piloting the use of facial recognition at 16 major airports. They're doing it on an individual basis, not in group settings at this point. And, uh, you know, a 2022 report from the Homeland Security Advisory Council's Customer Experience Subcommittee recommended DHS continue exploring biometrics for places like airports. Uh, Dan Daly is Deputy Director of the Information Assurance and Cybersecurity Division at TSA. He spoke at the Digital Transformation Summit about how TSA is looking at augmenting its staffing with technologies. How we can really enable their activities through technology, I think, is a primary mission space for our administrator at the moment. So there's a lot of efforts underway to really look at how we can create some efficiencies in what we're doing at the checkpoint so that you don't have to see 100 TSOs standing there. Maybe we can reduce that number down by a factor of 20%, 30%, 40%. No matter how good this technology gets, though, the skepticism never seems to flee from it, does it? There's still a lot of skepticism and and, uh, criticism of facial recognition. Uh, Recently, some Democrats in the Senate called on TSA to halt its facial recognition pilots. Um, They referenced the aforementioned uh, issues around how these technologies might treat different demographics differently or or they might be applied differently. Civil liberties issues associated just with capturing facial recognition and then just concerns generally around technology, technological surveillance. Uh, You know, Vermuri says the tests show facial recognition systems can be configured to meet certain parameters, but they should be applied in each case carefully and thoughtfully. There are technologies that will work well and work equitably and hit that 95% performance uh, threshold. However, as you saw, we also see some technologies that that fall below that for some demographic groups. So while there are available solutions that can do that today, we can't just take it at face value that all technologies are available today. This kind of highlights the importance of testing and evaluating for specific use cases with diverse volunteers to make sure that we actually are picking the right technologies for specific applications. All right, Justin, what's next for the Biometric Identity and Technology Center? 
Yeah, they're now preparing to launch a remote identity validation technology demonstration. Uh, essentially, they're looking at how different systems could identify a person remotely using a picture of their ID that they take on their phone. And this obviously holds implications for, you know, public benefits programs and and whether folks can apply online rather than going into their local, you know, Social Security Administration office. So that's what they're going to be working on here in 2023. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. 
it's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And... Yeah, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. 
At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.